Like we're we're improvising? I'm gonna bring out an electric guitar and I'm gonna shred on it is what that means. Oh my goodness. I didn't, I certainly didn't come prepared for that. <laughs> Dude, the people want to hear authentic. And so literally what's going to happen is we're just going to meander our way through what it, what it's like to start a company. That's it. And I have lots of experience starting a company. So I'm really excited to offer some input and my insights to both the both of you who I'm sure know a lot more about that than I Okay, yeah, let's play a little jazz. Let's play a little jazz. Hello, everybody. This is Richard Jane. And Jonah Petty. And you're listening to Commerce in Conversation. This show is an opportunity to listen to Jonah and myself. Mostly you. Mostly you. Yeah, you're right. Mostly me. This show is where you get to join me as I discuss industry-related topics, insights, and the overall evolution of the distributed commerce space, with a new guest diving into different topics each episode. Exactly. Now, just in case you didn't get that, I'll break it down a bit. Commerce and Conversation is your opportunity to listen in as Rishabh dives into trends and news within the e-commerce industry with new guests and topics each episode. Isn't that what I just said? Yeah, but you used some pretty big words that I didn't really understand, and I figured I'd translate for the regular, regular people out there. <laughs> didn't realize I needed a translator. Anyways, shall we go ahead and get this show on the road? Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk a bit about the startup space. I know that I personally, you know, I don't have any experience running or starting a business. I know that Rishabh has extensive experience. Quinn, I recently learned, I think, were, were, did, were you a founder previously? Did you found a business? Yes, business? I was a Founder before my time at Fermont at a company called Audiograph. Oh, okay. Well, what was that about? What did you do at Audiograph? Sure. So we were actually in the podcasting space. Um, so, okay. Uh, oh. <laughs> yep, yep. Relevant. Uh, yeah. And what we were trying to do is build tools for podcasters to like better organize and create engagement within their communities, sort of ultimately with the angle of monetizing, but we were built around the idea of publishing a podcast transcript where you could have conversations in the margins and like the same style as a Google doc. And sort of that was the centerpiece of our product. I suppose I've got some experiences that may be relevant today. Who knows? I was going to say, maybe you could give us some do's and don'ts, point us in some direction. I certainly know a lot of don'ts. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I'll tell you the one thing that's true for every startup founder. They know lots of don'ts. They know lots. <laughs> the single attribute of a startup founder is like the same attribute as like what it felt like when I was dating as a high schooler, which is like you just get rejected a lot. And it's just that over and over and over again. You just you just throwing the L's up. You're just throwing up L's. <laughs> Dude, wait. Okay, so Quinn, you and I used to work at the same company uh, at LiveRamp. We did. We did. And... You were leading a privacy initiative there or building our privacy products there. And then one day you decided like, actually, I'm going to go build a podcasting company instead. How did you make the decision to go from like, what is essentially a pretty cushy job to like starting a company? What sort of drove you? I think that it's generally like the sense of purpose that you derive from from the work that, well, at least for me, that's the thing that like most closely should motivate you to found. And I think when, like my job at LiveRamp is leading the privacy engineering team. And that was actually a product area that I was pretty passionate about. I thought it was kind of cool. It did involve a lot of compliance work, but I'm weird enough that I found that to be enjoyable. 
I think the problem with that, even though the work was interesting to me and sort of fulfilled some sense of purpose, there was a disconnect between the work that I was doing and understanding what value that I was providing for the world. And there's no like circumstance you can find yourself in where there's a pure connection between the labor that you're putting into stuff and uh, the value that it's creating for other people than founding a company where totally like everything you do is basically mapping directly to some output of your company that somebody is either going to like or more likely not like very much. Uh, and uh, yeah, that cycle is really, really cool. And you know, that's why I'm still at a super early stage company because yeah, I'm not like whatever. I'm not in a founding mentality at this exact moment, but uh, being close to the metal, so to speak, like really close to like, you know, the, the very foundational layer of a company is something that's still really important to me. Got it. Got it. So basically for you, purpose is derived from like seeing the actual utility in the world from the work that you're doing. Yeah. Right. And having is a, a really fair... close connection and feedback loop, I think. Yeah. Why, why is that? Why is that relevant? Why not? Why not just cash that money? Uh, yeah. I mean, and why not get fulfillment from like kite surfing? You know what I mean? Sure. These are important questions and questions that I'm asking myself a lot more after, you know, failing. <laughs> I think <laughs> this is. <laughs> I'm literally Googling questions. kite surfing right now. I have no idea what kite surfing is. I'm going on my phone and Googling it. Uh, look, I, I think it's important to get uh, a sense of fulfillment from a lot of different areas of your life. I'm certainly not ruling out kite surfing, regardless of whether I'm founding or not. Um, but I think that work is something that, like, is fundamentally deeply fulfilling for humans. And, um, uh, I think that when the product of your work feels like it goes into the void, um, that's something that sort of undermines the sense of like meaning that you, you, you sort of get from doing stuff. Totally. Can I give you, can I give you my, my thesis on this? And I want to hear your reaction to it. Sure. My thesis on this is like, we are addicted to needing to feel useful. And that actually is what allows for cooperation. Um, and like basically most of like what makes like humans different from other animals is like this like underlying nature of needing to feel useful. And I also think that that's why technological advancement will never get rid of jobs for humans because we just love working too much. And so like, Every new wave of technology, we find new work to do. I don't think it's because like we want to create more leverage. I think it's because we have this like insatiable desire to feel useful. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of truth to that. I think uh, at least for me, like sort of the, the point of evidence that makes this almost undeniable is that any time I go through a period of laziness in my life, I'm just like filled with this deep anxiety of you know, I should be doing something to add some value somewhere. And even though it's super abstract, I think it's really, uh, it's really weighty. I'm not as optimistic about as you about uh, the certainty that we'll find things to do, even as technology advances at a crazy pace. Because if chat GPT can figure out how to tickle my brain in just the right way to make me forget how to do work, um, I don't know. You never know. No uh, chance. But I hope that doesn't happen. I appreciate that, Rishabh. I, no, I'm, I'm heartened. <laughs> I'm heartened by this. Story. See, the only thing about Wally, have you seen Wally? Great film. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Jonah, Maestro. Oh, connoisseur. What is it? Culture? Connoisseur of culture? Pop culture. Is that what it is? Mm -hmm. Pop culture. 
Okay, there we go. I'm walking MTV and VH1. What do we What do we think, man? What do we think? What do we think is the least believable part of the film, Lolly? I would say the most unrealistic part of that film is I don't know the idea that every human is going to end up in one of those hover chairs. I feel like like to your guys' point, what you were saying that people are always going to want to work. They're always going to find some way. Humans becoming second rate to robots sounds wild to me. And also the most unrealistic part, I would say, is the fact that those robots fell in love because robots cannot fall in love. That's what I was going to say, too. (laughs) Yep, 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 exactly. Yeah, I just think that, I just think it's, I think everything else is highly likely. I think the single thing that is unlikely is, yeah, those people sitting in the chairs and, like, all the people doing that. You know what I mean? It's just, like, I think, and, and they show that they all, like, become dumber the less work that they do. I also think that's highly unlikely. I think, like, what is more likely is the less... I mean, and this has been, again, like, over time you can see this. We ask harder and harder questions the less labor we do. I actually think, like, the pursuit of knowledge and intellectual curiosity increases as you reduce the amount of work that you need to do. So I also think that that's totally, like, totally wrongly We should really be looking at a spaceship full of scholars is what you're saying. 100%. That is the most likely outcome. What do you think? You don't think that's what's going to happen? I like that perspective a lot. <laughs> Quinn, I, Quinn, Quinn does not like this hot take. He's he's just like this. There's no chance this is going to happen. Look, Rishab, I'm a contrarian. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take a stance that's just the opposite of yours. Basically, no matter what. <laughs> Indefinitely. So we, we went on this like pretty big tangent. So you were saying you needed to feel fulfilled, and so you started this company. Yeah. You started it with a friend from Liveram. Tell me a little bit about, like, how did you decide who are who did you want to put onto that ship early in terms of, like, what is the mix of people that you wanted around you in order to start a company? How did you make that decision? And then how did you make the decision about, like, early discovery and product market fit? Basically, every early founder, there's only two questions that are of relevance. Who are my, like, co-founders and early team? And then how do I do product market fit discovery? Everything else is irrelevant, right? So how did you tackle those two questions? I think with finding a founder, I think I knew that there were co-founder or, you know, people I wanted to work with early. I think my sort of general assumption was that there were a lot of things that I didn't know. And so like the nuanced aspects of uh, like how to make that decision, I just basically had two dimensions of co-founders that were very important to me. Do I like this person um, quite a bit? And... Uh, do I think they're smart? And those were those were sort of the qualities that um, that were really important to me early on. Um, and the idea was that if those things were true, that you could solve most other problems, and you'll learn a lot about what type of people you work really well with along the way. Yeah, I founded with a PM at uh, uh, at LiveRamp. Us complaining about the same stuff made me think that uh, he was smart, and us like sharing big ideas together made me like him. And so uh, I think that that worked out uh, pretty well. And um, yeah, obviously the whole startup journey ends up being pretty rocky, but you know we still are good friends to this day. And do you, so? Do you think it's actually important to be friends with your with your with the people who you work with early on? I was going to ask the same not. thing. Absolutely not. Uh, I think it is really important to. Uh, like the people that you're working with enough to navigate conflicts with them effectively. But I don't think it's actually like that important if you're trying to found a successful company. Um, I don't know. What do you think? What's your, 
your 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 I know your co-founder selection process was like far more rigorous than mine. Totally. Totally. Yeah. I'm I'm anti anti-family, anti-friend is my rule. And so it's like I only want to know you in the context of like, hey, how effectively do do we develop intimacy through doing work together as opposed to do we develop intimacy through like non-work related things, right? Like hanging out or whatever it may be. And and like for me, like you you start with that and then you build a friendship on top of it, not the other way around. Because if you go the other way around, I think what ends up happening too often is like people pull on like non-work related threads in work related contexts. Um, if there's disagreement, you know, I'm from India. And so like the number of places you see like families like break apart and like brothers not talking to each other and like all sorts of stuff like this is just like, it's such a tired tale at this point. Let's, let's talk about product market fit then. So, I mean, it sounds like we, we sort of agree. What, how do you, how do you think about finding product market fit? I think that pro- finding product market fit to me at this point, a lot of people, um, outside of sort of the startup ecosystem, I would say consider finding product market fit to be a matter of ingenuity where you have to come up with clever ideas. Um, and I think that it's, this is pretty much entirely wrong, but this is not like some <laughs> wild insight. Uh, it is merely a matter of discipline. Uh, it's a matter of discipline in executing the customer discovery process where you build something, um, and then find some way to get your customers or some person who's not your customer yet to reveal something true about it. But even on the most basic level, nobody wants to tell you the thing you just showed them is terrible, uh, but that's probably how they feel. And uh, why they feel that way is usually very informative. Um, but I think if you can have enough discipline to execute a process where you can figure out how to reveal something true about each thing you build and then act on that information, then you kind of get closer to product market fit. I don't know, what do you think about that, Rishabh? I think I think the zinger is like product market fit is not a stroke of ingenuity. I, I I but I do think that the thing that is like the underrated attribute is not like having some brilliant idea. It's being able to get punched in the face over and over and over again. Like I think that the process of finding product market fit is exactly what we talked about earlier, which is just like you have to be you have to like actually be comfortable with failure. Not like say you're comfortable with failure you have to like actually be comfortable with failure. you have to be like you have to go into the customer call and you have to say like hey have i understood your problem correctly okay great here's how we think we can help you solve that problem do you think this will help you solve that problem then they say something let's just pretend they say yes then you say great use it and then they don't use it now you need to go to them and say like hey can you help me understand why you didn't use it and you need to put them in a situation where they want to tell you why they didn't want to use it, right? Which is like, you need to like somehow get this person to say like, honestly, this product is kind of bad. Like, it's annoying to interact with. I have so many other things to do. It's not a priority for me. You know, it's just like, you have to sit there and be encouraging about this person telling you how bad of a job you did. You're just like, oh my God, yes, thank you. Thank you for telling me that how bad this is. And that is very, that is a very rare quality, like a very rare attribute in someone to be able to encourage someone to say that what they are doing is bad, right? Like not, not to not, like, first of all, most people just get defensive, right? They want to defend why their thing is good. 
then the median is, or, or like not even the median, but the neutral is say nothing. But great discovery is like, yes, like give me more of why I suck. Right. Which is just like, people don't be, that's just not a normal human way to operate. <laughs> so, it totally yeah. isn't. I, I think there's another layer of, of challenge here, which is that uh, like the first time somebody tells you that you suck, your product is bad is sort of a miraculous moment because now at least the reason they aren't using your product is because the product is bad instead of your idea being bad. I think there's this whole other like aspect of this challenge where people, the people's real problem with your product is that they don't even understand the idea of your product. Um, and like, as long as you're in that zone where the idea doesn't even resonate with people, you have like this even like steeper challenge where, you know, people are going to say nice stuff, but, um, yeah, you have, they have no understanding of what problem you're trying to solve, which means it's probably not a problem they actually have. Totally. And when your idea is bad, what it means is you're a dummy. And so now it's personal. It's no longer a product. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's the core of the issue, right? A hundred percent. It crushes your ego. It crushes your ego. My ego's gotten so huge since I stopped founding. <laughs> Dude, that is I've just, I've just been building, I've just been building oh that ego God. right back up. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. I, I feel like. I feel like the 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 thing that you have to be like super okay with is you just have to be super okay. like you have to be so unattached to any given outcome, and it's just so incredibly hard to do that. Did you did you listen? Uh, Toby Lutke was on Twenty VC. Did you listen to this podcast recently, Quinn? By any chance? I have not listened to the. I've, I've listened to Toby on a lot of different podcasts, but not on Twenty VC. Tell me, okay. I have not heard either. You haven't heard it? Okay. Okay, guys. I'm gonna give you two I'm gonna give you two things that I took away from that podcast and I wanna get your guys' reaction to it, okay? That are in this zone of like, you know, intellectual like um like deliberate ways of how you think about things. So the first one is he basically said he does not take uh any information sources that are not primary sources into like consideration when making a decision on something generally speaking i'm in this bucket of like i'm a primary i'm like actually a primary source person right and a lot of that comes from being a scientist before before starting the company but i i actually don't generally i don't actually listen to any information unless it's a primary source i guess how do you think that that's actually do you think that that's reasonable that like how do you guys how do you guys think about this framework of like primary source versus secondary yeah i mean like, I, I don't think it's pragmatic to say that I'm only ever going to um, to interact with primary sources. And I mean, like, even on a very basic level, it's it's work to interact with primary sources. And it's often very entertaining to interact with secondary sources. Um, but I think there's like, uh, so there's like the pragma pragmatism aspect of, of, of how entertaining it is. It's also... Um, I think like a really important aspect of like sharpening your own analysis to understand how other people are thinking about data. Um, but then again, like I think on the most important decisions in your life um, and the most important decisions affecting the world, it's really important to understand the data very deeply. Um, and the idea, um, yeah, I, I think that like for the issues that are most important to you, whether they're like the personal decisions that you make or 
um, the issues you care or think most deeply about that are affecting the world. Um, I think it's a real shame if uh, your views are, on those issues are shaped by secondary analysis rather than primary sources. Um, so I would say I definitely I would I would say I definitely strive to um, be more informed by primary sources on those issues. Uh, although the access to high quality data on uh, most topics that are relevant to my life, I would say, or pretty much anybody's life is kind of scant, but anyways, we do what we can. Um, so I, I don't know. I like to take quite a bit. Um, I guess what I would say, now, Rich, I'm going to ask you a question to your question is that um, the person that said that about only going to primary sources, were they speaking in terms just in regards to business or in general, sweepingly? Sweeping. In okay. In general. in general. I think that interpretation, it has its place. And I think it's important to understand those perspectives because if we just communicated in facts, there's a lot of misunderstandings that could take place because we as hum human beings rely on interpretation and we like communicatively, like one of our main drives is to like make meaning, right? And so if I'm just looking at numbers, like I'm going to have to construct my own meaning around what that means to me. Um, and that's where, you know, the secondary sources come into play because it's how these people interpret those numbers, these facts, right? I guess what I'm trying to say is that, no, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't be able to go by just by former primary sources because that feels a little, I don't know, a little too beat bop, a little too beat bop boop robot to me. I really value emotionality, sensitivity, perspective, um, not more than I value facts. Um, but no, yeah, I think, and I also think it, it also is important to consider, you know, the topics being discussed. I think that in different arenas and in different discourse, um, we can rely more on primary sources. And I feel like for other discussions, um, secondary sources are completely necessary. If I'm talking science, I'm going just primary sources because it's science. Um, if I'm talking about something like, I don't know, my feelings on salmon versus tuna on a sushi roll um, or a piece of nigiri, I'm, I can't go based on numbers because like some people just don't like salmon. Some people just don't like tuna. And I've always said that. Wow. Okay. That was, that was significantly more compelling than I thought it was going to be just to be, just to be honest, because at first I was just like, at, at first, at first I thought the argument was just like different people are different and value different things. You people know? are different. But then, yeah. But then, but then, but then, no, 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 no. But the, but the, but the salmon and tuna nigiri like point is actually a good point. It's actually a very good point. Yeah. And now I, I like, I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah. I, 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 I will admit that it's a very good point that like you listen to Toby. I, I'm not sure that he's like the most emotionally driven person that I've ever, that I've ever seen, you know, or, or like, I'm not sure that I would characterize myself as the most emotionally driven person that I know. And so I, I, I do think that there's like definitely high correlation between like the person's average behavior type and like how much they like where they are on this, on this uh, spectrum. Right. Okay. But, t but take two. Okay. This is, this one is an even spicier take just given that like, I happen to be your boss. Okay. But listen to the take. The take is, and that's why this is going to get good. Toby's, Toby's view is that the single idea in business that has destroyed the most business value is that micromanagement is bad. Meaning it is accretive to business value 
to be a micromanager. Accretive. Can I get that um, not used in a sentence and um, the <laughs> language of origin and the etymology? Accretive. Yeah, 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 like, like you, 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 you gain business value by being a micromanager. Okay, as, as a, a CEO, CEO, is a is that is that as wait, a leader? As sorry, a leader, as a leader. Yeah. Mm, okay. Generally, generally, so mean, meaning like your hit rate is higher if you're a micromanager versus if you're not. Uh, I think ex- exceptionally competent people uh, probably are well served to be micromanagers or. Uh, businesses they operate in are probably well served if those exceptionally comp- competent people micromanage. I think the problem is I'm suspicious of the idea that on average, uh, managers know how to execute better than the contributors that report into them. Uh, I think like proximity, like on average, probably everybody's going to be roughly the same level of competence, give or take like 20%. And uh, the largest lever on how effective anybody's going to be at solving a given problem is their proximity to that problem. So I would say, on average, micromanagement probably is kind of bad. No, I, so, so, so that's wrong. And, and I actually never thought about it in this way until he actually described why that, that perspective is not accurate. So the issue is that you're assuming that like the baseline set of activities is actually being dictated by the leader or you know, whatever, let's just use Toby as an example, but it's like being dictated by Toby, but it's actually not. It's that interferences in the action are being dictated by him. So the baseline set of activities is being done by the person anyway. So actually, let's just say you're more competent than me at like, hey, here's how you should run a podcast, right? I'm just making something up. We're recording a podcast. Fine. So on baseline, that's what we're doing. But the way in which I micromanage would be like, I see something and I say like, no, we're going to do this in this other way which is an interference, it's actually not a dictation on like the baseline set of activities. And so then the question is not, is that person more likely to do the baseline set of activities better? The question is, are interferences on average productive or counterproductive? Do you see the, do you see the distinction? And it's actually like a very important distinction. I guess I'm failing to notice or understand the difference between what is micromanaging versus what is critique and notes and application of those notes. Okay. So like, I mean, the extreme example that he gives is like, let's just say like there's somebody driving a car. Okay. And you can see the person driving the car is driving straight down the road. And then the road ends in a cliff. The micromanager takes the wheel and turns it. Right. Because they see like, Hey, this thing is going to go off a cliff, but they're not a priori driving the car. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so I think like if if we're working under the assumption that on average is it going to be more effective for the manager just overrule the person who's executing on uh, any given decision um, or any given point of disagreement, but allow the person to execute otherwise, I'm just a little bit skeptical. Isn't that a isn't that one of the spiciest I mean, takes you've take. ever heard? When I heard it's this, I heard this spicy. yesterday. Yeah. I've I've heard th- I heard this yesterday evening, by the way, and I I like cannot get over it i don't by the way i don't know where i land on this argument just to be clear right i want to be upfront about that like i don't know where i land on this but the way that it was framed which is like hey is there is there a higher hit rate if you interfere every time you think that you should interfere i it's like a such a hard nuanced question i'm just like man that is a good question that is a good 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 question 
when you say like hit, right? Like you're more likely to hit if you know the, the um, someone's micromanaging. It's it's in my head. It's a question of like, sure, yeah, we hit, we did it. But if by you taking the wheel of the car and doing what you wanted to do, could we have potentially avoided a better outcome? You know, it's like sure, like either way you could make you could you could hit right. Either way you could do right and go in the right direction. But like, are we only valuing success over like optimal outcome? Totally, totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why it's such a good question, right? So yeah. This, I, anyway, I'm, I'm going to tie it back quickly to like, okay, there's like these like set of things you need to do in order to find product market fit. And I think like oftentimes, like in that quest to product of product market fit as a founder, you're grappling with like, having to stare down failure, having to like ask questions that are really hard to ask, right? And and like be insanely truth seeking about it. Um, and then often, and like the founders want accountable, right? And so like Qu- Quinn, like just going back to that context, do you feel like, hey, you would have made decisions differently about that seeking of product market fit if you were only optimizing for that over everything else? That's an interesting question. Um... I think that at the time I would have told you I was only optimizing for that over everything else. I think it was not really a problem with like the value system, but rather like my execution of the value system. Um, execution. That's, got that's it. how I would got it, got it. It. But I okay. still, I mean, I still think the point is relevant. Um, no question about it. So now, now you're here, we're working together at Fermat. Do, how much do you think your, your experience of being a founder informs how you think about doing things here? Oh. That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Dude, I only have interesting <laughs> questions. Hot takes only. I come prepared with like spicy new ideas, All interesting right. questions. I, yeah. Dude. Rishab walks in with a scroll it's and then it drops and it hits the floor and then it continues to roll. Yeah. So, okay. Of, of, on some level, of course, it impacts the way that I operate here. Um... I actually think that I find myself um, more often having to resist my tendencies as, like a founder than I do, uh, which is actually something that I value pretty highly. Um, I think I'm pretty low on the old Fermat totem pole. Uh, and I think... Uh, <laughs> uh, Dude, you got, you got, you got a yeah, lot yeah, of social the, credibility. Our our totem our totem pole is in t- is like literally like you know it's a short two it's layer a short totem, totem pole. pole so it's no. a short totem pole. <laughs> I don't know this totem pole everyone's talking about. I haven't seen it anywhere. I think I'm make, trying to make decisions about a lot of really complex things in coordination with twenty other people now. When before, um, I was the like the top node, uh, and um, it's like a really different model. Um, and I definitely uh would say that I claim founder status uh, type decision-making with certain aspects of our code base um, and our front-end architecture, I definitely am willing to make some pretty pretty unilateral decisions. But I think when it comes to product stuff, it becomes a lot more important for me to uh, surface decisions and make sure decisions are well-connected with the customer. Yeah, I think I have to resist my, my founder urges more than I do, like more than I, than I would say I like, uh, act in accordance with them. Is this like deeply troubling to you, Rishabh? Or you're like, oh no, my employees aren't acting as founders. That's 
No. Not at all, man. What? No, dude. Why do I care? I generally think that everybody should operate in whatever way they think is going to be most effective for them. Awesome, man. So what what do you think? What is going to be the set of things that you're going to need to feel and or 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 like what would make you found again, I guess, is like the direct question. Like what are the sets of things that like next time you do it, given the experience of founding once and then like working with us in essentially like the early days, right? Like you were here when we sort of saw like our first inflection and we're working on our second inflection and so on and so forth. Like, what are you going to do differently next time? Yeah. So I know for sure that professionally, the thing that I find to be most satisfying and fun and like I'm happiest with is founding, right? That's something that I'm quite confident of. Um, But also right now I'm quite confident that I don't have the capabilities of founder to build a uh, like a high scale VC backed company. Like that's, I'm, there are some skill gaps there. Um, and it's like, it's like, it's like being a high school kid and you want to, obviously everybody wants to go play in the NBA or whatever. Um, and so I think there are certain aspects of my ability as an executor, I think to like with great discipline, like focus on things that are aligned with my current values. Like that's, that's something that I am not exceptional enough at to be like a really like effective founder right now. And I think I need to get better at that particular skill before I give it another shot. Uh, I, for most of my professional career so far, I've primarily gained like life value out of work and I'm, you know, experimenting around with other stuff in life and just trying to, you know, figure out maybe I can, maybe I can get some sense of value from being outside more often, things like that. Ooh. All right. We're, we're all the way back at kite surfing now. I was going to say that, that, that made you want to go touch grass. You old kite surfing. I was going to say that our next quarterly um, get together, we should kite surf. We're not going <laughs> to kite surf. We're not. There's just, this is like just as bad of an idea as like hanging out with the raccoons. You know, it's like Quinn is real, real unhappy with the raccoons. Yeah. Is there a raccoon drama I don't know about? Oh I, my R- God. Rishab has manufactured some raccoon drama. Uh, <laughs> I have not manufactured any. All right. We had our first company offsite and it was a camping trip. And there, oh. were racco- and, and there were raccoons, right? Because it's like in the woods. Right. And Quinn scares the living daylights out of me about like how feisty raccoons could be. Oh, they're mean. I, they get mean. And I get zero sleep on day one. Zero. I mean, essentially, right? Because I'm scared out of my wits and I see some. And, and like, in the middle of the night, I see raccoons out of my tent because I had to, like, walk out to use the restroom. Oh. Dude, I've never been more worried. And then the next day, thankfully, there's another more sane person on the team who's just like, yeah, dude, it's fine. Yeah, I think what I said to Rishabh was that, like, I wouldn't mm-hmm. physically confront a raccoon. Raccoons are regular carriers of rabies. Um, oh, my God. Dude, this guy is such a. This guy is changing his story really every time up. we talk about. Really this. hyped up the the <laughs> level of drama that I was uh, trying to convey with these raccoons. Rishab is making it sound like you walked up to him personally with a raccoon and was yeah. like, "This guy's gonna mess you up." All I know is that tonight. I slept great that night. I was that is not the... worried about raccoons in the slightest. All right, man. Well, Quinn. On that note of raccoons and on when you're going to start another company. Thanks for joining us today. It was awesome chatting through the founding journey and like all the different lessons and thought models that you used. Really appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for having me. I 
really enjoyed all the thought-provoking questions. Uh, when you said we we're going freeform at the beginning of this, I was a little nervous, but you really pulled it together. We covered a lot. We like we got through raccoons. We covered um, founding stuff, startup stuff. Hell, we even talked a bit about Wally. I think we, I think we covered all the bases there, y'all. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you again, Quinn, for coming, and we really appreciate it.